Hello, you are listening to Talk The Line. I'm Jen Long. This is our weekly podcast uploaded every Friday where I talk to a musician about something that they are deeply passionate about, that kind of specialist subject that they might sit in that big chair and talk about on Mastermind. You can check out all our previous episodes at talktheline.blog. Talk The Line alumni include Anne-Marie, Nadine Shah, Dan from Bastille, O Wonder, Kate Nash, Marika Hackman, Johnny Flynn, Naughty Boy, and Amanda Palmer. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkTheLine. You can follow me at Jen Long on social media. And it is easy to subscribe to this podcast. It means it gets downloaded every Friday automatically onto your listening device and makes us look massive in the charts. Got in the top 30 once. Big deal. Today's guest, Max Richter, was one of the first composers to combine classical and electronic elements with a post-rock sensibility, something which was radical when he began his career at the start of the 21st century. The German-born British composer is one of the most influential voices in post-minimalist composition and has also made a name for himself as a prolific writer of music for film, television and stage. His work has been featured in films from the likes of Martin Scorsese and he scored an episode of Black Mirror as well as HBO show The Leftovers. This month sees expanded new editions of Max's canon-defining record The Blue Notebooks released in celebration of its 15th anniversary. Max is also in London to co-curate Sound and Visions, a marathon weekend event at the Barbican. Working with his longtime collaborator, artist Yulia Ma, the pair have put together an ambitious programme that includes performances from ambient producer Caitlin Aurelia Smith and American saxophonist Colin Stetson, alongside the first full scale live performance in the UK of Max's 2010 album, Infra. Today, we're talking to Max about one of his favourite writers, the Japanese born Haruki Murakami should start yeah I should start by saying um I do feel a bit silly because I've had all these Murakami books in my house for so long because I have my my flatmate Annette she moved into a small flat ages ago before she moved into my Mm -hmm. flat and she had all these boxes of things and she I said she could put them all in my storage cupboard and then I had a bit of damp internal Mm. damp nothing to worry about and mm-hmm. some of her boxes got a little bit a little bit damp, so I took everything out of them, mm. and there were just so many Murakami books. Right. But there were also all the Harry Potter books. All right, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I read all the Harry Potter books, mm. but I'm still yet mm. to read her Murakami. Okay. okay. So this is going to give me like give a you kick a little to, start. Yeah, yeah, def. Because whenever we do these podcasts and it's on a book, mm. I always end up buying said book or nice. getting out of the library cool. or I mean I have like a reading pile still mm. beside my bedside table that just grows grows like every every few weeks when we do something yeah yeah it's great cool so yeah i'm looking to you okay <laughs> you have to inspire me okay <laughs> um so i guess the first question would be how did you discover murakami right well um how did i s- discover murakami i well i'd sort of heard about this writer murakami and I hadn't really ever connected to him. Um, and this is probably going back 10 or 15 years, something like that. And he was just, his name was around. Uh, and people would say, you know, oh, yeah, that's an amazing, you know, it's an amazing book. Or I've just read this movie, la, 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 you know. Yeah. And um, somehow I just never really sort of came across him. And then 
I was flying to Japan to play a gig and I thought here's my moment to you know get the Murakami <laughs> or and um, bizarrely somebody somebody in a band I mean this is going back a long time this is so this is like MySpace era oh yeah um, someone <laughs> on my MySpace said you know I, I love your music you've got to read this Murakami so I was like okay so I'm going to Japan this guy's just written me this thing mm. so I'm gonna get some Murakami and read it you know while I'm in Japan did you I, not worry about being like <laughs> that tourist <laughs> well I, I, I kind of like that you know I like the sort of it's almost like it sort of gives a sort of special effect kind of glow <laughs> to where you are because you're sort of half in a sort of fictional world and half in the real world so um so I bought um his first novel um uh, which is uh, Norwegian Wood um because I, I when I'm sort of getting into a new writer I like to sort of kind of start at the beginning because then mm. you're sort of following their journey was as well. Was that his actual first novel? Yeah, I think it was. Was it? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think he'd written some stories before, short right, stories, yeah. which were published in Japan in various journals, but it was his first real publication. So um, I bought Norwegian Wood and uh, read it probably on the plane out there, I think. Um, and uh, I was sort of really... I mean, it's, I wouldn't say, I wasn't like floored, but I was sort of enchanted, you know. Mm. And I think that's what he does. You know, he's, um, there, are, there are so many things in it that I liked and that I felt like I recognized, um, partly from other writers and partly from, I think, his worldview, um, which just kind of chimed w with a lot of things I've been thinking about. Um, yeah, I was really convinced and persuaded, you know, yeah. um, because I think when you encounter a new writer, you're, you're really sort of, uh, it's almost like, I almost feel like I want to be sort of, uh, it's, almost, it's not convinced about their sort of way of being, you know, because that's really what literature is. And, and I guess all creativity, it's about you know, this is how I see it, this is my experience of being alive, this is, you know? Yeah. And then we share that experience in the creative work and that's what's so exciting, you know, because then you get a window into another way of existing in the world, someone else's way of existing in the world. And I think that's what Murakami has very strongly. You know, he has a sort of a, like, uh, he has a, a very particular viewpoint, which is sort of, um, there are lots of things about it which are really funny and very strange um, and I was sort of really yeah like really charmed by it um, it's enchanting work um, because it has this sort of you don't quite well you do know what's meant to be real and what what's meant to be sort of imagined in the book but he treats those two things very as though they're the same Right. You know, so he sort of flattens the space between like fact and fiction in a really nice way. Um, and, you know, the book is about, I guess, a really formative time in everyone's life, which is a sort of this. Oh. <laughs> thank you for tea, magical tea. Thank you. It's wonderful. Thanks, thank Rebecca. You so much. That's brilliant. So, so the book is about a really 
kind of formative and magical time for everyone, which is sort of, you know, leaving home, studying, being away for the first time, and the intensity of that experience, which is where you, you know, a lot of, you sort of try to figure out what kind of person you are and, mm -hmm. you know, what your next steps are and trying to construct meaning in the world and make sense of it, you know, so. Making lots of mistakes. Lots of mistakes <laughs> and, and sort of some craziness and all of that. And, you know, that <clears throat> a lot of the book centers on that. Um, and it has a kind of, kind of an autobiographical feel. Mm. I mean, it's all, f you know, it's first person. It's very much, it, there's a lot of that sort of energy in it. Yeah, I read it was a, a bit like a Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. Which is written intensely in the first person yeah. with that, uh, I can't remember what the character's called, but his, his kind of way of speaking is, yes. it's very much part of, part yes. of the novel. Is it's, it written in, in that sort of way? It has, well, he's just talking about his experience. You know, the, mm. the book opens with a kind of a, the later, uh, an older version of the, the central character flying into Hamburg on sort of business. It's very sort of, it's like, it's just an ordinary day. Right. You know, yeah. 20 years later sort of thing. And then he he gets triggered back into this sort of memory state and then he tells the novel. Oh, cool. It's very cool, you know, yeah, and I love that sense of like reality having trapdoors like that, you know, because and again, that's a very Murakami thing. It's like there's a sort of equivalence in his world between the imaginary and the real. You know, that's really what he's all about. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a love story. It's a story of somebody discovering themselves. Um, and it's also political, you know, it's the backdrop to it is the kind of student unrests and stuff in uh, Tokyo at that time. And I think it sort of feeds into the kind of mythological aspect of Murakami. You know, I mean, he's a kind of, I always feel with him that he's, he's got a sort of the quality of a conjurer, you know, mm. there's a lot of sort of misdirection in his work. Um, because he's, he's very, he's very, very skilled at sort of manipulating your consciousness into particular states, you know, and he does that in a very, very clever and subtle way. And, you know, I think he's, there's a sort of playfulness in it. And I guess it even connects into, you know, things like his origin story of how he even became a writer, Yeah. you know, which is the most brilliant. <laughs> brilliant origin story of you know this this guy hitting a home run and as the baseball flies through the air Murakami's in the stands watching his favorite team you know and as, yeah. as the baseball flies through the air at a certain point he decides he's going to become a novelist before it lands right and it's just like he has this sort of epiphany and he's kind of all about that you know that's sort of magical transforming moments so he was literally at a ball game and the guy, it, said, it says he hit a double. I'm, I don't I know, know baseball. I don't know what baseball is either. It's a home <laughs> run, right? It must be a... When, it must be something like something two spectacular. home runs or something. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and he literally just... And he decided sit. before the ball lands that, you know, that's it. He's going to be a writer. And then just goes home and writes a novel in 10 months. Sort of, yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. And at that time, I think he was running a jazz bar. You know, he had that. Yeah. That's what he was doing. That so was he, his sort he and of his wife had yeah. owned a jazz yeah. called Peter Cat. Yes. Which is incredible. It's very good, isn't it? Name, yeah. That's a kind of anime name, isn't it? Yeah. It's got a sort of Studio Ghibli sort of... Apparently he doesn't like manga, though. It's something else that I read. Mm, that's interesting. Because it does seem like he sort of shirks Japanese culture a little bit from 
from what I've read, all his inspirations and, and the, the literature that he grew up on was quite sort of Anglo-American. Well, the f yeah, I mean, if you think about like the, pre I always think like the precursor writers for Murakami are American writers, really. Apparently it's because his dad taught Japanese literature. Oh, so he's got sort of a father, father issues. And he, he was just like, want, he just didn't just want to talk to his dad get about away from it. it. Yeah, right, if okay. he started reading the Japanese books, his dad right. would tell him well, this is the way it should be, and I don't think he wanted to be told. Well, that's, yeah, that's it's a classic sort of father story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, he actually translated Scott Fitzgerald, which mm. I think is quite interesting about him, because, uh, I mean, Scott Fitzgerald is yeah, beautifully made writing, isn't it? And very emotional. Um, I think another writer that, that I sort of feel like um, sort of hovers behind Murakami a lot is, is Ray, Raymond Carver. Yeah. Um, and in fact, he does paraphrase a Raymond Carver title later on oh, in course, uh, What We Talk About When We Talk About Running, you know, is, yeah. is, a, is a paraphrase of a Raymond Carver. That like. was one of the first times that I heard of Murakami was yeah. I had a friend who was yeah. very into running. Yeah. And I, I really like to run as well. And he's, he told me that I should read it. Is it sort of an e a long essay? It's or? a long essay on why he runs yeah. and what it's like. Because he's, like he's done an ultra marathon, mm. which is crazy. Yeah, he's a serious runner. Yeah. He's, he's kind of a serious everything. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's yeah. like, a, he's got a massive record collection. He's a very sort of, he's a writing machine. It seems like he does, whatever he does, he's a, he does it to sort of the maximum. Yeah, he seems very, very focused. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, but he didn't start writing, I think, until 29. Yeah. He didn't start running until he was 33, which also kind of gives me <laughs> this weird hope inside. Yeah, it's all still there. Yeah. It's all still out there. <laughs> like mm. maybe if I could focus like Murakami. Yeah. Focus then like what Murakami. Could I potentially that, that's, that sounds like a they're playing, like a they're playing the bar fly tonight. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. But yeah, I mean, have you read his running essay? Yeah. yeah. What What does he? I mean, what does it detail? Does it detail his sort of stretching regimen? Yeah. Or? Well, he talks a lot about preparation, and you know, he sort of does analyses of various runs he's done, and like running experiences, you know, why he goes out, where he goes in the mornings, he's running on, you know, Hawaii or wherever he is, he, he gets a residency at some university, I think, and, he's, and his experience of running there. And it's, he, he basically uses it to kind of riff on all sorts of other things, you know, so running as a metaphor for, you know, whatever, you, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a nice book, actually. I mean, I'm not a runner, and I've sort of never understood running. Yeah. You know, because, like, for me, running is, like, strictly functional. You know, it's for a bus or, you know, <laughs> or, you know that's running. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I know that, you know, people do. It's like a religion for some people, right? Mm, yeah, um, yeah. And he is, yeah, he, he's very serious about it and quite ambitious, you know. Well, I mean, to do an ultramarathon, yeah. you have to be very ambitious. Yeah, yeah. you know, so... I guess that's, yeah, it's a big part of his life. I have a sense that, you know, in all his writing, there is a kind of a, there is like a typical Murakami character. Okay. Who's this kind of, you know, educated, rather sort of inward, sort of neat and tidy, thoughtful, slightly depressed person. who's very imaginary. 
very imaginative. And you think, well, that's probably, he's probably talking about himself there, yeah. you know, um, given what we know of his, you know, his various obsessions. Um, so it's, yeah, it is tempting to kind of, you know, read, read that, uh, you know, sort of map him onto those characters. Mm. Um, is it ever tempting to map yourself onto those characters? Well, I think, yeah, you know, the, the thing about um, Murakami's writing is that the characters do live in this world which is sort of half imaginary, half real, mm. and it's a sort of very fertile sort of dream-infused kind of a universe where, you know, counterintuitive things happen, um, you know, you get, you know, talking cats, buildings appearing, disappearing, giant worms, and it's all, you know, and it's all sort of, it's all sort of very, treated very matter-of-factly. Yeah. And so it gives this sort of weird sense of like altered states, you know, the, wor the, the sort of mundane world, the normal world has got this kind of magical sort of shadow side sort of hovering inside it. And you never quite know, you know, where the sort of boundaries between those things are. Mm. And I think there's, there's something very similar to, you know, a lot of the way a lot of creative people view the world. You know, yeah. it is it is this sort of place of sort of potential. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me, that really chimes. It's not that I think that there is a, you know, kind of super worm sort of holding the city of London together or... Well, yeah, I, I suppose that's what I meant when I said about mapping yourself onto yeah. onto that sort of character because all, all the people that I've ever, you know, heard talk about Murakami mm. or seen reading it uh, are kind of friends who are in that, like, well-educated, creative, mm. um, sort of sometimes perhaps more prone to a little bit of a, a depressive trough. Mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> that does seem to ring true with a lot of the people that have, I've spoken to about Murakami in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there is a, there is a, again, sort of going back to this sort of typical Murakami character, you know, very often these people are, are sort of at a bit of a, either a crossroads or a dead end, you know. Mm. They're just sort of treading water in their lives. You know, the number of descriptions in Murakami of, you know, someone going out, you know, shopping for one for lunch, going home and like, you know, making a bowl of pasta, sitting down, doing the washing up, eating the, you know, and that, I mean, that's what happens. And it's all quite sort of, you know, nothing to see here, you know, yeah, there's yeah. nothing happening, right? <laughs> and yet sort of, you sort of feel that kind of everything is happening as well. But it's, it's, it's really interesting. So there are these guys who are just, these people who are just sort of, yeah, they're like uh, a little bit like the sort of lost sock in the washing machine. You know, there's that sort of sense of them being a little disconnected, a little bit um, other in some way. Mm. Mm. And what is it about that kind of mundanity that he that he can create such beauty and such mm. imagination around what is it his turn of phrase or is it the way that he parallels these sort of mundane everyday mm. things next to these fantastical but also quite matter-of-fact creations yes I well I think there's a lot of I think there are a lot of different things going on to, to sort of cause these these amazing effects in the books um, I, I mean I think the first thing is that he is very aware of of the sort of beauty of small things which is something I think which is is really often overlooked, you know, especially with, you know, in creative work, there is a kind of, um, 
there's like a sort of uh, arms race almost going on a lot of the time, you know, musically, you know, the sort of, you know, the biggest, most dramatic emotional effects or, you know, the, the biggest beats or something or, or, you know, some, you know, enormous sort of story arcs with sort of huge events in them. Um, in cinema, of course, we've got that whole sort of, you know, very inflated sort of blockbuster sort yeah, of, yeah. you know, CGI sort of world, you know, which is all about effects, you know, sort Anything of sound and fury, you know, yeah, yeah, right? So it's all about everything is like bigger, louder, more. Yeah. And I think he, he is, um, you know, he's quite suspicious of that, I think. He, he's not really very interested in it. He's more interested in the tiny stuff, mm. you know, and the, and the way that, you know, a life can be made up of, of a lot of small things. Um, and there is that sort of, you know, that probably has something... To some extent, it's in Japanese culture, I think. You know, if mm. we think about, you know, sort of uh, sort of Shinto and Zen and those sorts of ideas about concentrating on, you know, the essentials, the small things. Not that I, I don't think Murakami is remotely interested in those things from a spiritual side. Yeah. And the fact he sort of pretty much disavowed that, I think. Mm. Um, but I think it's cultural. You know, this idea of, like, valuing small things. Yeah. Uh, I think there's something very beautiful about that, actually. Yeah, there yeah. kind of is. Yeah. Now that, yeah, it's, yeah. But once someone explains some, something in, in that sort of sense or mm. puts that amount of effort into, yeah. into demonstrating it, suddenly it just feels poetic. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a poetry in that, though, isn't there? I mean, we, you know, it's about a kind of quality of attention. Mm. And I think that's a very writerly thing, you know, giving, really giving attention to stuff. Um, and he certainly does that. You know, he describes these, um, you know, really quite ordinary activities. Very beautifully, and and with with the sort of a tenderness actually for just simple actions. I did notice when I was researching <coughs> for this podcast that yeah. I, I I didn't normally when you have an article about a writer they kind of tend to reference the genre, mm -hmm. so it would be like Stephen King horror mm -hmm. writer mm -hmm. or um oh god who am I thinking of Patricia someone who's that crime writer. Hi Smith, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I couldn't see any genres. Yeah, well, there isn't. There kind of isn't a genre. Yeah. I mean, he writes really broadly. I mean, there are, you know, there are like a piece like Norwegian Word is sort of very romantic, sort of um, Bildungsroman, we say in German. You know, it's this sort of idea of like a, a novel of the journey into life, you know, into mm -hmm. adulthood. And, um, or, you know, there are, there are bits of Murakami which are really sci-fi, you know, or, and there are, there are things which feel like sort of magic, I guess it connects a bit to sort of magic realism in a way, you know, there's a, all kinds of fantastical elements. Um, but you don't really feel like it's, it's, he's like sort of not like anyone else really, in that he's just sort of, uh, he's sort of pursuing his, his, he's like he's following the material, you know. Mm. And you sometimes feel like the oddest things happen. Like very un sort of like there's this um I'm trying to remember what it what it's called. There's a character who's a sort of sheep. He's like this hybrid sheep person in um is it Hard Boiled Wonderland, I think. I can't remember. And you you just sort of um he's never really explained why why he's like that. And and sort of nothing happens. <laughs> And yet, and yet, it's like there's something You're not very selling affecting. This, Max. There's something very affecting about it, you know. I mean, it's oh, yeah. I mean, he's 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 very interesting in that way. 
it's it's the sort of irrationality. I think Kafka is also there actually oh, as a sort of, you know, he hovers behind it. I mean, it took me about a year and a half just to read Crime and Punishment. <laughs> <coughs> now, Crime and Punishment, not Kafka. That's um, oh, no, that was Dostoevsky, wasn't it? No, yeah. uh, the Trial. That's the Trial. Yes. Of. Yeah, that one only took me about a year. That is a heavy <laughs> read, but it's like deliberately heavy, right? It's unreadable because it's just nothing happens over and over again. It's yeah. just sort of it wears you down, right? <laughs> The book has the effect on you. Oh that God, I just found it the so frustrating. Is going through, yeah. right? Your whole life has just been used up trying to read this book. I think I actually had two different copies. I think I had to, I had to either give back or I lost the first one. Yeah, that was like a Freudian slip. You just like threw it away. Yeah. Oh, I've lost it. I've lost the trial by Kafka. I, I just don't know where it is. Oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But then. I feel like people don't talk about him with such a heavy heart that we might reserve for, for the more kind of like intense Russian literature yes, writers. I think that's true. I mean, I think, I mean, he, of course, is like Kafka on the shore is a late one as well. So, I mean, he's obviously there somewhere, but it's this sort of use of things which are really absurd mm. to kind of either contextualize or kind of spark new story directions. So how much of his works have you read? Have you, is, it, is it kind of addictive? Do you read one and then crave for that sort of style of writing? And well, I yourself? think you want to, I think you, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it really depends on your sort of, what kind of person you are. Mm. I mean, for me, there's a, they feel incredibly comfortable as a sort of a place to be, you know, because it's this world which is, which is a, got, a, got a kind of a thoughtfulness there's a it has got a kind of uh i think it's it's is kind of warm-hearted but it's like it's sort of 51 percent warm-hearted <laughs> you know which is like it's just that it's very nuanced his writing yeah a friend of mine said it's it in a good way she said murakami's work is like lukewarm water <laughs> So it's like, and she meant that as a compliment, you know, so it's got this kind of very soft, gentle, beguiling quality, mm. but it's not, it doesn't sort of come at you and it's not sort of, you know, look at my writing. Mm. It isn't really like that. Um, and I, I really enjoy that about it. Do you think that's another thing that kind of comes from having that Japanese culture? Because nothing, I mean, they're quite quite a modest It's Yeah, people. it's a sort of restraint, I guess. Yeah. yeah, there's a kind of, it's very elegant writing, mm. but it's not flashy writing. I mean, you know, I'm saying this, I'm not, I haven't read him in Japanese, of course, but, yeah. you know, this is, these are the, yeah. But I saw he, um, he puts a lot of care into the English translation. He does. Um, one of his translators, Jay Rubin, um, is, they, I mean, they kind of work together on it quite a bit. Yeah, and then he allows that to be yeah. translated into other languages, but then people have gone back since and done translations into yeah. French and German from yes. his, yeah. his original. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever read any in German? No. Just in English? No, I've read them in English. Right, yeah. 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 So you decided to use some of his, I was going to say lyrics then, but that's not right, is it? Quotes are. from his books? Yeah, some I used some fragments in Songs From Before. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I love, um, you know, in the records, I love to use more than just like musical sounds. And, you know, I use electronic music, found sounds, the studio, 
text voices um, and I, I wanted to make a record which had a kind of uh, sort of interior personal kind of a world you know the blue notebooks which was the record before the Murakami record you know that had Kafka on it and Cheslov Milos but that was a political record mm. in a way it's sort of outward facing record um, and uh, so the songs from before was a kind of yeah it's like an interior sort of record and Murakami there's a sort of magical uh, sort of a private space he sets up in the books and uh, I wanted to try and sort of explore that mm. with this record so I just chose a few little fragments um, from two or three different books and uh, just kind of <coughs> yeah and just kind of positioned those um, as kind of cues really to the way the music kind of uh, sets off were they quotes that you already loved or did you get to reread with di a different kind of mindset yeah you do you know because you you know when you're reading you think oh that's great you know, and they sort yeah. of scribbled on them you know um, but then you know I, I I had this sort of I mean when I've first got into Murakami I read the first one and then I was like wow you know this is great so then I sort of binged about sort of four or five <laughs> okay so, so you, you did do a binge yeah you did. so so in my mind they're all a bit jumbled up to yeah. be honest you know I just sort of blasted through them uh, like a junkie you know <laughs> and um, you know more Murakami and um, I mean if you're gonna be addicted to anything yeah okay <laughs> exactly harmless kind of <laughs> so um so then I yeah so then I I started thinking yeah which you know which bits I would try to sort of use in the in the in the record and and actually when you're thinking about text from that standpoint it's you know it takes on a different dimension because obviously you can only use a little bit so um in a way each individual little fragment has a becomes kind of bigger mm -hmm. um and uh, so, yeah, so I set off to, I, I got uh, asked Robert Wyatt um, to record these for me, and uh, which is a brilliant, you know, I mean, the guy's, he's wonderful. He's yeah. absolutely wonderful. He's got a wonderful voice. He's got a wonderful voice, and I mean, he's an amazing uh, musician, mm. an amazing sort of, uh, you know, songwriter, was an incredible drummer before his accident, and, you know, I, I, I just think it was a nice, that was a nice, uh, sort of collision really I first became aware of Robert's work in this you know uh, as a drummer in a soft machine mm. you know um, an amazing band really um, and very creative and sort of I almost felt like I mean they were sort of I guess parallel to the kind of early Pink Floyd sort of very psychedelic English thing you mm. know um, and that kind of dream space that they inhabited had a, has a sort of Murakami-ish echo, you know, that yeah. sort of anything's possible kind of, you don't magical. quite know what's happening, sort of magical space. Uh, so it was great to have him, have him involved, you know. Have you ever had any personal connection with uh, connection with Murakami? Has he ever have you, has he ever commented on it or no? Uh, no, no. We I, I can't we, imagine he'd be the kind of guy that would be tweeting about it. I don't think he. I think he's very private. Mm. You know, he's just a very private guy, and I don't think he. 
Uh, you know, I think he, he regards his business as that of writing, not anything associated with being a public figure. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, when he, when um, Norwegian Wood was published at the beginning, he basically became sort of housebound because it was such a massive hit in Japan. He sort of couldn't go out. Wow. And um, I think Harry that, that's... Harry Styles of Japan. Yeah, and I, and I think that's... I think that's kind of what um, prompted them, because they, they lived in Hawaii for a while. Right. I think that was, you know, sort of what prompted that. He kind of fled. God, and his routine is insane. Yeah. Like, he seems so regimented. When yeah. he's writing, he gets up every morning at, I think, 4 a.m. Yeah. Or something like that, and writes for a set number of hours. Yeah. And then goes for a long run. And yeah. then, yeah. you know, a little bit of leisure in the evening, and then to bed by nine. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely get on board with the bed by nine bit. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in a way, creative work, yeah, that is great for getting stuff done. Do it's amazing. Do you kind of do something similar when uh, you're working on I do sometimes, yes. If I have a lot to do and it's intense, then I will go into a kind of a sort of monastic mode. Um, it's important to make yourself stop as well, though. Yeah, I it assume. is. I mean, it, in a way, it reminds me a little bit of Philip Glass talking about, you know, when he was starting to be a composer. He, he basically just said, right, I'm going to be sitting at the piano with a pencil in my hand, you know, every day at you know, 11 in the morning or something. I'm going to sit there for two hours no matter what happens. Mm. And he did. You know, that's what he did. <laughs> and after a while, something did start happening. Yeah. Because you have to sort of train your mind, right? Yeah, of you course. You go to the mind gym. So, I mean, it's just like it's so hard to focus in, in this day and age because you'll sit down at your mm. computer to do something mm. and then someone will have sent you an email mm. and then it will make you think of that novelist's name that you've forgotten. So mm -hmm. you type that into a search engine and then you read their Wikipedia page and mm -hmm. then you'll think, oh, I wonder if any of my friends like that on Facebook. Mm. And then you just end up in this spiral of information yeah. and it's all completely unnecessary. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that's one of the really big challenges of our lives today. Mm. Uh, at least, you know, psychological challenges in the, you know, sort of developed <laughs> affluent world where we can have these problems, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Of course, yeah. But, uh, you know, Life is so difficult with <laughs> my It's a MacBook. nightmare, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's all a the nightmare. information at my fingertips <laughs> and all the cat gifts, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it is a big challenge. It's a big challenge, you know, and I think we, it's so easy to get kind of, you know, consumed by all of that sort of flickering screen mm. sort of brain, you know. In that sense, Murakami's works do sound like they could be quite a nice escape. They are, yeah. I mean, I think so. Um, it is, in a way, it's a kind of low information universe, you know. A, a few things happen and they, they all have a kind of, kind of magical significance because of that. Yeah. I feel like I want to go and, I feel like I want to buy some of his novels mm -hmm. from a second-hand bookshop. Yeah. So you know when you buy second-hand books sometimes and you're reading through them and the person who's owned them before will have underlined a certain passage. Yes. And sometimes you're like, oh, actually, like that is a really beautiful turn of phrase that I yeah. wouldn't have given as much attention mm. to. But sometimes they're just absolutely baffling. You're like, why have, why have you mm. underlined that? That makes no sense whatsoever. Well, you see, that would be a very Murakami thing to, to do, actually. You go to a second-hand bookshop, buy a book. <laughs> find somebody who'd underline something really like why did anyone underline that it's a very murakami event oh okay so what, <laughs> what what's my starting point as a complete novice do you think norwegian wood's a good place well norwegian to start? wood is where he started mm. so in a way 
and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, I mean this in a good way, um, he's sort of, he's got a world which he sort of keeps writing through. So in a way, he's sort of always writing the same novel, but from like different stand, and I mean that as a compliment, <laughs> I really do. Um, you, you know, Norwegian Wood is the beginning of something, and there really is, uh, it's almost like walking around a sculpture, you know, you just, you can look at it from one side and then you walk a little bit and you see something else, but it's the same sculpture. And you really have that sense with Murakami. That's one world which he's sort of, he's sort of shining a light through it at different angles all the time. Are there rec more recurring characters than just the sort of version <coughs> of himself? I mean, you say about the sheep man, does he come up with... <laughs> I don't know. I can't. There's also, I mean, there, the thing is, there's, I guess there are characters, but there are, there are more to do with like character types. Mm. There's all these kind of lost people there and they're not necessarily particularly down about it, but they just kind of a bit disconnected, okay. you know? And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's his universe, you know? If you started out reading Norwegian Wood in Japan, mm -hmm. did that not kind of, having that world around you, which you said brought so much to yeah. the text, mm -hmm. was it not like a little bit disappointing when you had to come back and read one read the others well in our, yes, in our no. English culture where yeah but a novel is something that transports you okay. so when you're there you're there you know you're yeah. reading that book you're there and I think for me reading you know reading Norwegian Wood in Japan was um, I mean Japan is like a total immersion experience um, because it is so intense um, but as somebody who doesn't speak or read Japanese it's very um, it's overwhelming, actually. Yeah. Because there are no signs in English anywhere. Wow. You know, so you really just sort of, and you'd think, oh, well, they all speak English, but they don't. No. They really don't. I'm like, oh, of course we'd think so, that. So, <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, but you, you think of them, you know, Japan as being like really forward, you know, sort of technology, the future, yeah, yeah, all of that. Yeah. So you just think, oh, well, they probably all speak English. We'll be fine. Mm. They don't. So you can't read anything and you can't talk to anyone. And you're in this place, which is just really different. How do tourists get by? I've never been myself. Mm. It's, I've kind of always wanted to wait till I had a reason to go. Yeah. You know, because otherwise I feel like I would be even more lost. Yeah, well, you are, you're lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in a really good way, you know, you're like lost in like this creative way. It's yeah. Good. It's good. Okay, so Norwegian Wood, do you have a personal favorite? Um, ah. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's difficult. I mean, there are there are. I mean, they're all good, really, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, Nor Norwegian Wood obviously the first one, so you know that made a big impression. Um, the Wind Up Bird Chronicle is amazing. You know, it's huge and complex, and oh, it's wow. sort of political as well, and it does history and all kinds of stuff in there. Mm. Um, Kafka on the shore is beautiful. It's kind of autumnal. Again, it's a sort of a love story. Um, really good. IQ84, which is the most recent big one, mm. is, um, is really interesting because it's sort of got a couple of new things in it. Like, okay. it's, so it's his world, but he's sort of growing out from it. And it's got one or two really incredible moments which just sort of which I mean he's just very very good basically mm. 
Like there's this, there's this, there's a kind of a subsidiary character, a secondary character in IQ84. He's this hitman, right? We don't really know anything about this hitman. He's just this little guy. You know, he just walks on basically. He's around. In the novel, he serves a function. You know, so. And at a certain point, this hitman is murdered. Um, and he describes the way this guy is murdered. And then in that sort of tiny last bit of this guy's life, you learn something completely different about him. You learn, basically, so as he's dying, he, he remembers a completely different life, which you were not aware of, because he's portrayed as this gangster, sort yeah, of yeah. guy. And then he, as he's dying, he remembers this little house with his two kids and the dog playing on the lawn. And it's just so beautiful. And you just think there's, there's a sort of whole humanity behind this character. And it's just breathtaking, you know. I'm really sorry. I know what you're describing mm. does sound in incredibly deep and probably very moving when you're reading the It novel. is absolutely. All it I'm thinking you. about is Austin Powers when they right. kill the henchmen. Okay, and right. <laughs> <laughs> that was different. Also different. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it is. It's an amazing, you know, it's just like he, he is a sort of a conjurer in that yeah. way, you know. Has have any of his novels been um, made into movies? Yes, there is one. Um, well, there are two now. Actually, Norwegian Wood was made uh, by um, a fantastic Vietnamese filmmaker called Tran An Hung, mm. who who made a beautiful film called The Scent of Green Papaya quite a long time ago. It's a lovely film. Uh, I actually haven't seen the Norwegian Wood. Mm. But, um, but he's a really good filmmaker. That's cool. Um, and then there was previously there was a film. Um, made of one of his short stories uh, which has got a beautiful uh, Sakamoto score actually, Rucha's Sakamoto score cool. um, which is a, a really really nice piece of filmmaking um, yeah Is there anything that I've missed? Are there any kind of entry points or little bits about his life that you, you personally find fascinating and think that we should share with people listening? Other stuff um I guess, I mean, one of the things he's into is he's really into music. Yeah. You know, he's massive on jazz, and he's very interested in classical music. Right, okay. And he's, he has done this book with, um, which is a book of conversations with um, conductor uh, Sergio Tsawa, where they just talk about music, basically, and sort of, you know, Schubert and Beethoven and things. The whole book? Yeah, it's just them chatting. He's done another book, of, uh, another kind of compilation book as well, <clears> I was reading. Oh, yeah. Um, Probably. Which features lots of stories from other people, but I can't remember for the life of me. Oh, yeah, he did some translations, yeah. Mm. The Ray Carver story and a couple of other yeah, things. Yeah, and they're all under one theme. Mm. I'm not sure what it was, though. Yeah, but that music book is quite fun. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Do you need to already have quite a base level knowledge of, say, classical or jazz? It's mostly about classical music. Okay. It's about, yeah, you know. So, you know, if you're into classical music, yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. So he has like, well, how many records was it? Like thousands and thousands. No, right. that's 60,000? Could 60, be. 60,000 seems more likely. 600,000 seems far too many records. Yeah, could be. I mean, yeah, people collect records, right? Yeah. Mm. And it seems kind of incredible that he had a, a I'm, I'm assuming it was successful, successful jazz cafe yeah. at the age of like 29 with yeah. his wife. Mm. And then embarked on this Changed completely different career. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think he's, I mean, he's clearly a, you know, he's a, you know, very talented guy, you know, very, mm -hmm. but also very incredibly focused. Yeah. You know? it's, I need yeah. some of that focus. <laughs> <laughs> I remember 
I don't know if you've seen that film, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you seen no. it? It's a brilliant movie. It's about, it's about this guy who runs a sushi restaurant in a Tokyo uh, subway station. A mm. uh, very ordinary looking place, you know, it's like a kind of bar straight restaurant, but it's, it's kind of the best sushi restaurant in Japan. And people go there from, you know, from travel from around the world to go there to have this sushi. And uh, it's run by this guy, Jiro, who's old, and he's got two sons. And, um, you know, the sons are like both working for him, you know, and, but they're like, they don't have the seriousness that he has, right? Mm. And, and uh, there's a brilliant thing uh, in where Jiro's being interviewed by the director. Uh, David Gelb, who actually made Chef's Table. I don't know if you've oh, ever yeah. seen that yet. So. Um, so he interviews him and he says, what do you think about, you know, your sons, you know, carrying on the business and how's that all going to work and stuff? And, and he says, well, you know, all, all my son has to do, um, and he, mean, he means this in a good way, you know, he says, all my son has to do is get out of bed in the morning and do the same thing, exactly the same thing, every day for the rest of his life and he'll be just fine. And there's something so Japanese about that, you know, and you could sort of see Murakami getting out of bed at four in the morning, you know, yeah. and it's that, that is focus, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's tougher than it sounds. In a, yeah, it is. Yeah. A big thanks to Max and also to Rebecca for the cups of tea. Other literary podcasts are available at talktheline.blog, including Ben from Blind Avon on German literature, Eva Hendricks from Charlie Bliss on comic books and Emily from The Staves on adult fantasy fiction, including Philip Pullman. Next week, I'm talking to Turf Striker on personality types. You've been listening to Talk the Line. I'm Jen Long. This is a podcast from The Line of Best Fit, the UK's premier website for new music discovery. It was produced by Paul Bridgewater, who is looking to expand his podcast network. So hit them up if you have got an idea. Original music is by Seams. Please subscribe to this podcast if you're a fan. Follow us on social media for podcast-related updates. And if you really like it, you could be an angel and leave us a nice review. See you next week.